Hello and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behaviour in a practical, fun and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello, and welcome back to the Potential Psychology Podcast. It is mid-July 2020, and here in my home state of Victoria, we are back on the COVID roller coaster. In fact, I suspect that we were always on this roller coaster. We never got off. We just didn't realise because we're in that calm lull period. We were at the bottom of a big dip, travelling along horizontally, earthbound, not too fast, thinking it was the end of the ride. And then we started climbing again steeply. And all of those emotions came back, the fear and anxiety and frustration and worry and disappointment, and probably a bit of curiosity and some intrigue. And all of our best attempts to predict the future, to feel in control and that information seeking and the need for cognitive closure that I spoke about a few episodes ago, right when COVID-19 kicked off here in March. And I will link to that episode in the show notes if you haven't heard it. And I feel like that's the hardest part right now, isn't it? The emotions, the feelings. Victoria is the state most affected by climbing covid cases right now here in Australia, but I'm not in Melbourne itself. Here in Ballarat, we haven't returned to the stage three restrictions that are keeping our Melbourne friends and family stuck at home. And that's great. I feel very fortunate, but I also feel guilty for feeling fortunate. My parents and my sister and brother-in-law and my niece and nephews and many friends and colleagues, and of course, many of our listeners are in Melbourne. You may be listening right now in Melbourne, and if you are, know that I'm thinking of you. Everyone in regional Victoria is thinking of you. We're sad that you're back at this point. We feel guilty that it's you and not us, like a weird type of survivor guilt. We are getting on with life, albeit still not the life it once was, knowing that you're even more restricted than we are, but also knowing that it may just be a matter of time for us and we must enjoy this little bit of freedom while we have it because it may not last too long. And of course, if you're listening to me elsewhere in the world, your circumstances may be completely different and I may sound utterly self-indulgent talking like this when you are perhaps not only lacking in freedom, but maybe far more threatened by this illness itself. And if that's the case, I am sorry and I hope that you're doing okay and really what a mixed up and muddled up world we're living in right now. And so this brings me to today's guest and our continued conversation about learning to thrive through disruption, challenge and change. In fact, that's the subtitle of my guest's new book. She is Dr. Paige Williams. She is a speaker, consultant, researcher and now author who's worked with hundreds of leaders in business, government, NGOs and education, weaving positive psychology with neuroscience and leadership together with her own research and over 20 years of international business leadership experience. And we're talking today about change and challenge and disruption and becoming anti-fragile. 
welcome, Paige. It's so lovely to have you here. You are the author of a brand new book called Becoming Anti-Fragile, Learning to Thrive Through Disruption, Challenge and Change. And I'm intrigued by this term anti-fragile. Can you tell us first, what does anti-fragile mean? What does it mean to be anti-fragile? Oh, well, um, thanks so much for, for having me today, Ellen. Yeah, so I get that question a lot. It's not a word that many people have heard. So let's talk about where it comes from, first of all. So um, the original work was anti-fragile, and it was written by an author called Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And he is essentially an economist. And so the original work was very much about economic systems and political systems, and how is it that they can withstand and actually improve through disruption. And I first came across the term in Mark Manson's book about hope. And when I came across the term in that context, Manson talks about it in in the understanding that everything we do moves us towards becoming anti-fragile or moves us away or moves us towards being fragile. And when I first came across the term in that book, it really brought together a lot of my work in positive psychology and systems thinking, my lived experience, my experience as a leader and with leaders, and thinking about what would it mean for human systems and whether that's a system of one or a team or a whole organisation to become anti-fragile. And so when I think about it in terms of my work with leaders and with organisations, and if we think about it in human systems rather than economic systems, I understand anti-fragile to be the ability for us to cope with the level of disruption, challenge and change in our environment. So we can think of it in terms of a continuum. So at one end, we have fragile. And if we're feeling fragile, then the level of disruption, challenge and change in our environment, we find that overwhelming. And so we don't feel we can cope. So we we don't feel we have the ability or we have the motivation or we have the support available to us to kind of get through If we move up the continuum a little bit more, we might feel that we're robust or we're resilient. And that means that we can either withstand, if we're we're robust, we can kind of deal with it. Or if we feel a sense of, of suffering or loss in some way, we can bounce back. So that's the resilient piece. So it's definitely that we feel a level of discomfort, but we can withstand it or we can bounce back from it. But when we move into the anti-fragile end of the continuum, we certainly feel the discomfort. It's not that it's necessarily an easy place to be, but through our experience of disruption, challenge and change, we actually grow and learn and thrive. And so through that experience, we come out of it in some way better. And I put that in quote marks. We have come out of it with some learning. And I talk about that we can learn forward with. And we come out of it and are able to see the experience, even as we're going through it, as something that we're not necessarily comfortable with, but we see we're going to benefit from. So that's really how I understand anti-fragile in kind of a human systems term, rather than the economic and political context that it originally came from. Okay. And that makes a lot of sense, I suppose, when we we talk about the possibility of being able to thrive through change. It's almost adding another dimension to, you know, that probably, I suppose we all like to think in dichotomous terms, don't we? So, you know, something either breaks us or we withstand it, that resilience piece, but it's almost adding an extra piece onto the spectrum there, you know, going from, if we think about it in terms of, you know, how we might describe positive psychology, we take from getting people instead of traditionally psychology thought about taking people perhaps from unwell to well, and then with pos psych, we add on that extra dimension of 
then to thriving. So the you know the zero to plus ten, and so from what you've described to me that is suggesting that this same addition to the spectrum is there of going from change breaks us to change we can withstand and withhold change to we can actually thrive and grow and learn and be our best selves potentially as a result of this experience. That's right. I mean, a a lovely way to sum it up is it moves from breaking us to making us and there's nice alliteration there. So that's sometimes a nice way to sum it up. I love that. And I think the closest that we've we've had in psychology in terms of this type of thinking has been post-traumatic growth. And there's been research done around how actually people over time, when they go through a traumatic experience, can recognise the growth and development and, and how they have come out of it in some way better than before. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is, you know, what anti-fragile is and isn't. And it isn't post-traumatic growth because what we want to do is not have to go through kind of a a life-changing trauma in order for us to move through this kind of learning cycle, this learning loop, and come out of it better. Because post-traumatic growth can often involve quite life-shattering events and, and can involve a lot of time and effort and energy, understandably, to rebuild from that process. So I talk about becoming anti-fragile as kind of micro post-traumatic growth. So we, we shrink the trauma and we shrink the time lag involved in that kind of bettering process or bettering perspective. And we try and build that into our daily experience. And so you're right, it's that idea of what's the other side of resilience? What's resilience 2.0, 3.0 or beyond resilience? Because I just feel that, I mean, certainly the way this decade has opened up, There's plenty of uncertainty. There's plenty of challenge and change for us to be working with, right? We've got a very ripe environment to become anti-fragile right now. And just bouncing back to where we were before is really not going to get us through. It's going to deplete us. We're going to get very tired very quickly. And we're not actually going to be moving forward necessarily and understanding what's the growth and learning that I can take forward so that the next time, the next thing that happens, I've actually got more resources, more skills, um, more motivation to draw on to, again, take me forward. Because the disruption, challenge and change isn't going anywhere, that's for sure. No. And in fact, this is exceedingly timely as a book release for you because you didn't start writing this once the world kind of turned on its head this year, did you? You had actually started prior to our crazy, crazy 2020. That's so true. So I've been working in leadership and positive psychology and systems thinking for over 20 years and, you know, have a lived experience as a leader and have helped organisations think about leadership for a long time and have been thinking about, you know, how do I want to bring together what I feel is important to leaders in terms of bringing out the best in themselves and others and helping themselves, their teams and organisations to thrive. And so I came across Anti-Fragile, as I mentioned, last year when I was reading Mark Manson's book. And that's really what brought a sense of coherence to everything I've been thinking and playing with and my PhD research around systems of well-being. And so I was gathering together everything in about September last year, and it was gathering momentum as I read more about Anti-Fragile. And then I, I literally sat down and said, right, I'm writing the book. I think it was the weekend after Australia Day this year, so like the end of January. And literally within two or three weeks, it felt like the world exploded and, and I needed to get Anti-Fragile out there as quickly as I could to help as many people as I could. So it's been a very focused process. 
the outcome of, of the COVID situation has meant that my calendar cleared pretty quickly. And I've been very fortunate and, and grateful to have the time to really focus on on moving the book forward so that I can share it with people as quickly as I can. Because I really do think that it will help people reframe what's going on right now and help them find a pathway forward that's gentle and kind. It doesn't kind of um, give people a stick to beat themselves with. That's the last thing we need. But it does give us a constructive way to think about our pathway forward and how might we be intentional about the way that we engage with a less than ideal environment. And let's be honest, probably even before this decade of disruption began, we weren't always living in an ideal environment. So it's a good life skill to be able to think about how we can deal with those in a constructive and purposeful way. And it strikes me that that's exactly what you've done in that experience of having your calendar clear. And because for all of us, there's been so many mindset changes in this, you know, to go from, obviously you had the idea you're working on it, but suddenly it was, hang on, here's an opportunity presenting itself to me to actually create. And then I assume through that thrive and grow yourself, because writing a book is not an easy process. (laughs) And there's certainly a sense of achievement that comes from getting it finished and seeing the published form. So, you know, actually then being able to use this as your chance to thrive and grow through what otherwise could have been uh, works disappeared. What am I going to do with this time? How am I going to keep myself afloat? Do you think, have you thought about it in those terms? Absolutely. And I, and it's so right. One of the ways that we can kind of distill what, what is anti-fragile is if there's more upside in downside in a situation or in, in you, then that's anti-fragile. You're living anti-fragile. And what's interesting, and I'm sure you found this, is as you start to teach or think about an idea, certainly I start to more and more see, well, how am I living this? How can I be authentic? If I'm teaching this, how can I walk my talk? And that's certainly how being involved with the field of positive psychology has helped me grow so much as a person because if I'm standing at the front of a lecture theatre or a classroom talking about broaden and build theory or how to generate meaning for people as, as a leader, then part of that is how am I doing this? How am I walking while I'm teaching? How am I walking a talk? And so as I explored Anti-Fragile, and, and then this happened at the beginning of the year, and as you say, you know, the calendar was pretty empty pretty quickly. <laughs> I was like, right, what's the upside for the downside in this? And and really, I'm sure you feel like this, Ellen, as someone who is working and has family. You know, there are times when I just thought, oh, can we just put the world on pause for a minute? Because I feel like I've got to catch up. And it, it felt like the world went on pause for, for a couple of months. And so part of me went, oh, wow, have I somehow brought this into being? <laughs> and I didn't have that much power. Um, <laughs> But then I just went, well, okay, how do you really make the most of this? How is this a, a point at which to live, you know, to walk your talk? What's the anti-fragile in this for you? And the luxury of being able to have the time and the mental energy and the focus to really put in service of my writing in the book because, you know, as I've mentioned to you, I don't find writing easy and this was my first book and it's not the same as a PhD thesis. It's much more enjoyable, in fact, I found So, yeah, it was lovely to be able to have the space to do that. But I think, yes, that's one of the the mindset switches that we can think about is how is it that as something happens to you, you can, as you acknowledge, it's not about squashing that there is struggle. There may well be struggle. There may well be discomfort. But as you are going through that, 
how can you hold at the same time this idea of where is the learning in this for me? Where is the opportunity in this for me? And so I really want to emphasize this isn't about denying struggle, but it is about opening yourself up to the possibility that thriving and struggle can go hand in hand. And I've been involved in research with another one of the projects I'm involved with called the Wellbeing Lab and alongside that the Leaders Lab. And we've done some research this year in Australia and in the US as COVID has unfolded on how are people feeling in workplaces and about work. And one very consistent finding has been that actually those people who are able to hold this kind of almost inherent tension between thriving and struggle, they are experiencing struggle, but through that they recognise that there are aspects of themselves and their lives that are thriving, those people are able to come through these uncertain times in a far better space in terms of their well-being. So this idea of it's either or, this black and white thinking, is one of the things that we need to let go of, understanding that as humans we're complex systems, we're very rarely black or white, and this idea of being able to hold thriving and struggle together, and in fact, as complex adaptive systems, it's actually struggle that helps us to thrive. We need to adapt and evolve. And that's how we've managed to come to the place and space that we are now as a species. And yet our modern lives have kind of stripped that away from us. So it's about how can we introduce a bit more struggle into our lives to kind of build up almost our stress inoculation, our capacity to fail fast and learn fast and be okay with that. Mm, Yeah, it's such a fascinating process. And I I love that you've mentioned that kind of being able to hold, it's almost two emotions, isn't it? I know, you know, for me, the first time I really thought about it, certainly once I've explained it to other people, you know, this idea that we can as human beings feel two things at the same time, we can feel angry, but also forgiveness. We can feel frustration, but also possibility. You know, it's not black and white, as you say. And so the idea that we can both struggle and thrive is probably one that's a little harder for us to get our heads around initially. But once we do, all sorts of you know opportunities open up. It's so true. And when I'm working with leadership teams and groups, and I ask them, you know, think about the things that you're most proud of that you've achieved in your life. And they can range from volunteer work to running a marathon to coaching a soccer team, or it can be a work, a work-based project. And then when we ask the question, was there struggle involved in that journey? And for sure, there was always struggle involved in the journey. Was it always comfortable? Absolutely, there was always discomfort involved. And yet those are, that's the work or those are the things that we're most proud of. And that is where the sense of thriving comes in. So The thing I encourage in the book and with adopting this kind of anti-fragile perspective on things is how can you shorten that feedback loop? So how is it that even as you're experiencing the struggle, you can be open to the possibility that there is meaning and accomplishment and thriving involved in this? And you may not be at the point where you are realizing that and experiencing that right now in this moment, but just opening yourself to the possibility that actually it's not too far down the track will shorten that feedback loop around in the thriving struggle cycle. And I suppose, you know, speaking of the book, I'd be interested to hear, and for the benefit of our listeners, you use a model called Robust that does guide us through these steps, these processes of, you know, how do we do this? How do we shorten that timeframe? How can we actually extract this knowledge of anti-fragility as a learning experience and put it to use, I suppose? Could you briefly just talk us through Robust? It is an acronym. What does it stand for? So the book has kind of 
three distinct parts to it. One sets up the case for anti-fragile, and then the second part of the book puts forward the robust principles. And then the third part of the book applies those robust principles to an individual leader's energy, attitude and mindset. So that's kind of the really applied piece. So the reason that I've developed the robust principles, and look, I want to say here and now, I normally hate acronyms. I think they're really cheesy. But at the same time, if we work with neuroscience, we know that our brains love acronyms because it helps us take a, you know, a big chunk of information and distill it down. And at the basis of that, uh, the principle of that is that heuristics work. So these are kind of guiding principles that can help us understand complex information in a very simple way. So the robust principles are guiding heuristics, they're guiding principles for us to be able to become anti-fragile in an environment that is complex and uncertain and challenging and open to change. So I felt like, again, I had to walk my talk. If I'm going to talk about guiding principles, then putting an acronym to them makes sense. So why guiding principles? Well, as I've just alluded to, in environments where there is complexity and uncertainty, rules just don't work. You know, if we're used to saying, if this happens, then I do this, that's just not going to work. I mean, if you try to apply those this year, all the rules have been blown out of the water time and time again. And just as we think we're getting back to a place of stability where we might be able to apply some normal rife rules again, you know, here we are in Victoria, certainly, and with the COVID situation, it's very much in flex again. So guiding principles are agile enough for us to be able to use them as a touchstone to guide our behaviour, our mindset, our thinking, without them being too narrow that they are prescriptive and might in some way limit the way that we need to respond or get ahead of what's happening in our context. So that's why robust and why principles. So I'll just take you briefly through the six. So the R of robust stands for recruit the brain. And that's because I am a firm believer is we we cannot fight physiology and we need to understand what are the most basic instincts that drive us in terms of the way our brain responds and both in physiological terms. So what neurotransmitters get flooded into our systems because that's what's going to drive the way that we think and the way that we feel and the way that we behave. The O stands for operate in reality. And so if the R deals with neuroscience and the brain, the O deals with our mind, so our psychology. And so operating reality is about how is it that we can strip away the stories that we tell ourselves about what's going on. Now, because our brains can't process all the information that comes in, in terms of input and data, we sense make by making up stories. And so operating reality is about how can we find what's reality in that so that we can deal with that rather than get hooked into the stories. Now, the first two are about your internal world, your brain and your mind. The B and the U are about how we interact with the world. The B is, stands for break the negative, build the positive. Break the negative is about sometimes we need to strip things away in order for us to be able to move forward. So rather than just adding more in, adding more in, how is it we need to have a look at who is it I don't want to be? What are the things that are making me fragile? that I need to get rid of first before then I start moving myself towards robustness and anti-fragility. And then the build the positive is the classic positive psychology around how is it we can use our strengths? How is it there might be some unrecognized, unrealized strengths that will really help me get rid of fragility, build resilience and move towards anti-fragility? So that's the B. So the U is about use intelligent risk. 
So this is this idea of a learning loop, a learning cycle. How is it that we can, recognising that our brains want to keep us safe, actually engage in risk that doesn't mean that we feel so unsafe that we're frozen, but we do it in a smart way, so hence the use intelligent risk. And I introduced something called the learning loop as a framework that we can use for that. And then the final two, the S and the T, are about how is it that we can become anti-fragile with and through others. So the S is seek collective wisdom. And this one can be quite challenging in terms of us letting go of the need to have all the answers, particularly as I deal with leaders. There's this kind of expectation that they'll provide the solutions, that they have all the answers. And yet one of the principles from the original work with um, Taleb is that actually we need to distribute risk. And we can do that by getting diverse perspectives and getting collective wisdom into trying to find solutions. And then the T, the final principle in Robust, stands for tackle the infinite game. And so the infinite game is an idea put forward by Professor Richard Kass, and it takes us beyond short-termism. It makes us look for things that are beyond ourselves, beyond our involvement in this project or this team or this organisation, and actually looking for a contribution that serves future generations or that serves things beyond our tenure. And that gives us a sense of not just looking for a short return on investment, but looking for a way of making contribution that will serve the long term. So that's a quick highlight through the robust principles. I love that it's grouped together. You know, as you were saying that, I I was kind of thinking through, because I like to chunk things, you know, again, just a normal human brain, (laughs) chunk things together Mm -hmm. as well. And so those first that R and the O being really that kind of self-awareness piece, isn't it? Just understanding yourself, how your brain operates, which is so informative, you know, to learn. I know there's lots of discussion now about neuroscience, but I think, you know, when you do really start to understand a bit about the physiology of the brain, how it drives our behaviour, as you mentioned, the impact that can have on us, start to put us in the driver's seat so that we've got a bit more control over what we do. And then that operating in reality of just the understanding, the psychology, again, that self-awareness piece moving into your behaviour and how we do what we do. And the thing that struck me, I think you you talk in that section of the book about thinking about what we can control and what we can't control, trying to remind ourselves that there's a lot that goes on, especially in change and transition and disruption that we can do nothing about. And we can waste a lot of excess energy and excess emotion really focusing on that stuff, but to be able to flip it around and think about what is it we can control? What is it that we can do something about. That's exactly it, Ellen. And that's what makes us fragile with that particular principle. If we can strip away those stories, and often the stories are what ifs, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if? And we're dealing in fairy tales. We don't know if those are going to happen. We can't know. No one's got a reliable crystal ball that I know of just yet. So, how is it then that we can, as you say, stop the emotional leakage, stop the wasting of energy? Because when we deplete ourselves in that way, we can't be as effective in dealing what the reality is and actually being effective with whatever we're facing and, and helping if, as leaders and helping our people do the same. So, yes, this kind of um, deal with what is actually able to be controlled, what you can actually have an effect on, can be a real, when I work with leaders, when I coach executives, this idea of this is how your brain works, this is what you, the stories that you tell yourself. And when they start stripping that away, there's this level of clarity that comes and this energy as well 
because they're no longer in kind of the fog of the storytelling, which is lovely to see. Yeah, absolutely. And so empowering. I think that's the thing that I find with a lot of people when they do start to focus on the piece that they can control, even just acknowledging that there's a lot you can't control and you don't need to stress about it. I mean, you can, that's your choice, but it's going to be uncomfortable and difficult. And as you say, it's going to make you more fragile. So, you know, being able to kind of refocus on that, what you can do something about is incredibly empowering and helpful and absolutely makes sense that that would contribute to anti-fragility and then that B and the U being more about understanding ourselves and how we operate. So the the R and O I think of as your internal workings and then the B and the U are how that shows up in the world. Yes. So how do you show up? The B and the U might be how do people describe you? If people, if you were to ask people, do you see me as someone who's creative and innovative? Do I take risks? They would have an opinion about that. Now, that's not because they know what's going on internally, which is the R and the O. It's because they would have a sense of do you use intelligent risk? Do you try new things? Are you okay with failing? Do you think about what's another way of doing this? Or they might talk about you in terms of your strengths. So the B and the U is kind of the interface between your internal and external worlds. So it's how your internal, your R and O, show up in the world. And that's your the B and the U. Okay, so it's the doing piece, I suppose, is how I'm trying to think of it. It's it's the bit where you're in action mode, where you're doing, and I love that you're using intelligent risk. You know, it's what I call test and learn. You know, just try things, get the feedback from it. Did it work? Great. What can we do to do more of it? If it didn't work, well, what do we learn from that? Try again. And being okay with that. I'm working with a group of people at the moment who I was actually talking to others about it in terms of yoga. So for yoga, one of the big things I've learned from yoga has been that it's about the process and not the outcome. Mm. So it doesn't really matter you can set a goal or set a target or, or have a, an opportunity and you really want it to look like a certain thing or to result in a certain outcome. But if all of our attention gets placed on that, that does make us more fragile, doesn't it? Because if it doesn't work out that way for reasons that may or may not be in your control, that's when we can emotionally and ego-wise fall apart. But if we focus on that process, that testing and learning, the action that we're taking instead and what we're getting out of that as we're doing it, it takes the pressure off the outcome and we get so much of that opportunity to thrive in that bit, don't we? That's so right. And I'm also a a yoga fan. And often the yoga instructor will talk about your yoga practice. This is a practice in terms of you show up to your mat each day and you practice. And so there isn't an end point. Getting a particular shape in a particular pose doesn't mean that your practice is over. It's a lifelong practice. And it speaks to the work of Carol Dweck, doesn't it, in terms of fixed and growth mindset. And we know from Carol's research that a fixed mindset does make us fragile because it means that if we're focused completely on outcomes, then if we get any feedback that suggests that maybe those outcomes haven't been achieved to the full extent, it is personally wounding. And it means that we then don't try. We we do what I call play safe, play small. And so this idea of actually the the benefit is in the learning and so thinking about setting learning goals rather than performance goals and adopting a growth mindset is really an inherent part of what sits underneath using intelligent risk and one of the interesting pieces that came from Taleb's original work and comes from I think the kind of the economic thinking is thinking about how is it we can use what he calls a barbell strategy so as we think about 
multiple options is one aspect of using intelligent risk. So that speaks to kind of hope theory and the work of Rick Snyder in terms of multiple pathways. But then Taleb adds to that, how can you make sure that they are interdependent? So use what he calls a barbell strategy so that the options that you're choosing as you're thinking about distributing risk don't have what I call a domino effect so that if one fails, it knocks all the others over. Um, And a nice tangible way to think about this is if you're using a new approach to running meetings, for example, or you're going to take a different approach in terms of using different questions or opening up conversations in a different way, then you might do that in one meeting over here with one team. And then you might choose a different team over here so that if your initial experiment bombs and it doesn't go very well, it doesn't mean it's wiped out kind of or every other meeting for that day, you've got another meeting over here where you're going to, as you say, go through the learning loop, use your test and learn mentality, or what I sometimes call tinkering after Tinkerbell in the Disney movies. And you're going to try something slightly different over here because then you've contained the impact of that experiment. You've learned forward and you're going to try something different over here, but they're interdependent. One doesn't influence the other. So that's what I mean by building our muscle up around failing basically how can we fail fast fail small and be smart about how we learn forward this barbell strategy helps us to do that so understanding who we are understanding how we operate and then expanding that a little bit through this process of testing and learning pushing ourselves just outside the comfort zone enough that we kind of continue to grow and then the s and the t starts to look outward doesn't it? So it's starting to look at our interpersonal, using your team, that seeking collective wisdom. So using the relationships around you. Again, challenging thing, both for leaders in organizations. And I think for many of us in our personal relationships, not to become defensive when we do that. You get feedback not to go, oh, no, no, but I know what I'm doing and it's all under control and and you just don't understand. (laughs) But having that really open mindset to that and saying, I'm going to park it just listen. Yeah, there's a real courage and vulnerability piece around this in terms of letting go of the need to be the person with all the answers or the need to be the person that takes responsibility. You know, this can speak to deep things around identity and where is my value in the world and etc, etc. Whether we're talking about kind of formal leadership in an organisation or my my reflection on this was my role as kind of a mum. I'm now divorced, but when we were in a nuclear family, I was the person who did everything. I did all the household stuff. I managed the diary. I managed the finances, da, 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 da. And yet I realized that actually that didn't create any space for anyone else to be involved in how the family ran. And so part of why I love Anti-Fragile so much is it's been a personal journey for me as well. And I kind of recognized that I needed to seek collective wisdom around, well, what did other people in this family unit think about how we were doing things and what the priorities should be. And even as simple as what we should eat for dinner each week, I didn't need to make all those decisions. Perhaps everyone could choose a day and, you know, really simple everyday things like that can help us just open up this idea of actually asking for different opinions, getting different perspectives on the same thing and coming to a more robust, a more anti-fragile solution as a result of that. One of the things I lecture at Melbourne University for the Centre of Positive Psychology, we talk about how there cannot be a single point of contact on a course, on a program for the uni. And that's because that's too fragile, because if that one person gets sick or is not available for some reason, 
that course falls over. And so seed collective wisdom then is how that helps us become anti-fragile because any solutions or any programs, projects, anything we do is going to be more robust and more anti-fragile if there is more knowledge, wisdom, perspective involved in it. And so the challenge in that is how do we do that in a way that's respectful in terms of getting diverse voices in a room and how do we perhaps create space and containers for people to disagree in a respectful and honouring way. And that's not something we're particularly good at doing and it's something that I know leaders can feel very uncomfortable about kind of handling. We hide from conflict. We do, yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that you actually use that example as the mother in the household and, and it doesn't need to be the mother, it could be the who, whoever it is in charge of the household because I think for a lot of my listeners we probably do, many of us would have the sense of feeling fragile around that stuff, mm. feeling like if anything goes wrong in this complicated system that I have woven in order to maintain control over everything that needs control or we feel needs control it's only going to take one disaster and it's all going to come tumbling down so to be able to even think about our internal systems and our family systems as you know what have we set up and is it fragile or is it anti-fragile what was interesting was for me how much of that is based in the stories that I'm telling myself so you know that loops us back to operating reality how much of this is not the reality this is just the reality I'm creating because I'm saying I have to do this all. But once I let go of that story, and once I was able to say, hey, kids, why don't you choose one meal each week? And hey, Darren, my husband, why don't you cook two meals a week with the kids? And that way we've got multiple benefits coming out there because they're doing some cooking together and they're choosing and da, 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 da. So, you know, some of it is we create this stuff for ourselves. Mm. So these are, whilst there's, the robust principles are kind of set up as as individual principles. We are interconnected systems, so they do absolutely speak to each other. Yeah, absolutely. Many leaders and managers and organisations, and I know that's kind of been the domain in which you do the majority of your work. Although, I mean, the book does nicely walk that line between having, you know, leaders in organisations at its audience, but also acknowledging that we are all just people no matter your role, and, and this stuff applies across both. <laughs> Absolutely. We, you know, it's not like the stories you tell yourself at home are going to be fundamentally different to the stories you tell yourself at work. We're the same person. It's the same brain. It's the same mind that goes from role to role. And sometimes it's that role conflict that can make us fragile or cause us most angst and suffering. So these principles absolutely apply across whether it's your professional or personal life. Um, and I have deliberately use examples of both as we go through the book, but really through the lens of what I call leadering rather than leadership. Leadering, I frame it in that way because I believe that leadership sounds quite passive. Leadering is about active, intentional, purposeful, deliberate action. Mm. And whether that is at home as a parent, whether it's in your social life as a friend or a family member, whether it's at work in a formal leadership capacity because you've got that kind of title to your role or whether it's just because how you're showing up at work, that to me is little L leadership and in a way has so much more potent impact than the formal leadership. And I think it's leadering at all those levels. And so that's why, yes, as you say, there's a, there's a blend of what could this look like at work? What could this look like at home? 
And the reason I feel leadership is so important is because certainly formal leaders in any system help to create the environment for everyone else. And so if we can help those people adopt their robust principles and and manage themselves differently, see themselves differently, create an environment where others are able to be anti-fragile and they can help coach and help others learn how to become anti-fragile, that's when we start to see ripples through a system of change. And so though I've got two more books planned, one will think about what does it mean to create anti-fragile teams and the next, what does it mean to create anti-fragile systems, a kind of a whole organisation. So watch this space. (laughs) You've grown the idea as you've gone along. I love that. There's been a bit of anti-fragile thinking in there. You know, how can I grow? How can I thrive? How can this concept grow? Which I think is delightful. And I love that you mentioned that idea of leader-ing because I think for many people, and as you were just saying, you know, because of the impact that a leader has on an environment, again, whether that's a parent in a household or whether that's a formal leadership role in an organisation, that flow on effect, as you mentioned, that ripple effect, you know, if you've got a fragile leader or if as a leader you are feeling fragile, even just that reflection on once we're able to conceptualize it that way, what does that mean? What message is that sending to my team? How is that having an impact on my behavior, my mood, my willingness to take risks, to try something new. If I'm all kind of brittle and fragile and just waiting for something to break, you can just see how that would play out in terms of behaviour and the kind of culture and mood and environment you're creating. Well, I think we know what it's like to deal with someone who is feeling fragile. It's walking on eggshells, right? We, We feel like they need to be handled in some way. And whether that's in your personal life or your professional life, that in itself depletes energy when you're having to handle someone who's fragile and you don't feel you can give them feedback or say what needs to be said even if it you know coming from a place of kindness as often it does they just they couldn't handle it they couldn't deal with the conversation that needs to be had so yet there is and I say this in the introduction to the book this is an invitation to intentionally engage with what may be a level of discomfort in terms of looking in the mirror and finding what you see there but with the understanding that what comes out on the other side of this will help you grow, will help you thrive in environments that are becoming increasingly more unstable and complex. So it's an invitation to be a bigger, braver, courageous version of yourself and to really show up as who you want to be doing what you want to do in the world that makes sense and has meaning for you. And I really do believe that's what's kind of on the way of this becoming anti-fragile journey is it takes you towards that version of yourself. And I think that's brought us nicely back to what we said at the beginning about this being an, an opportunity for us as individuals, you know, reading the book and going through this learning process of adding that extra dimension, you know, at at the moment as we go through all of this tumultuous chaos that we're experiencing in every facet of our lives, being able to move from I'm not coping to I'm coping and resilient and now here's my opportunity to actually build on that, to learn from this experience, to grow through this experience and become the best version of myself. And help others do the same. Absolutely. In every facet of life. Paige, thank you so much. That's been delightful. It's given me such a lovely way, a lovely framework for thinking of things about things that I already knew a bit about. So hopefully for our listeners, they've got that framework. And if there's gaps in the bits that they'd like to learn more about, your book is a fantastic place 
to start. When does it hit the bookshelves? That feels like such an old-fashioned thing to say now. <laughs> when when yeah. is it available to people to order in, in all its many forms? Yes, so it will be available as a paperback, as an audiobook and as an ebook. It's available to pre-order right now on Amazon, but becomes available on the 24th of July. And there'll be a special for you to enter a draw to be part of a masterclass with me. There'll be only 20 people in the masterclass. And so if you buy on that day and send a screenshot of your receipt to antifragile at drpagewilliams.com, you'll be entered into a draw to come to that exclusive masterclass. And just so your listeners know, that's because we're trying to get to the Amazon number one bestseller on that day. So it would be wonderful if they, they could support our efforts in that and buy on Tuesday the 28th of July. I will make sure that that message is loud and clear for everyone. Well, obviously everyone here listening is listening to it, but we can share that on our social media channels as well. That does sound like a fantastic opportunity. So the book is Becoming Anti-Fragile, Learning to Thrive Through Disruption, Challenge and Change by Dr. Paige Williams. We will have all of the links to where to buy it, how to buy it in all its forms in the show notes for this episode. So just shoot on through and find it. Purchase on the 28th, available from the 24th, purchase from the 28th. That gives us plenty of time. Paige, thank you again so much for sharing all of that with us. As I said, it's given me some great ideas. I'm hoping, I'm quite sure that it will give our listeners plenty of great ideas as well. They can read the book to learn more and perhaps we will need to further this conversation once you've extended it to book two and then book three as you grow <laughs> and thrive. I would love to. It's been a joy being with you here. Delightful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here and for listening into my conversation with Dr. Paige Williams. We've put the link to Paige's book, Becoming Anti-Fragile, Learning to Thrive Through Disruption, Change and Challenge in the show notes for this episode at potential.com.au forward slash podcast. And there you'll also find a transcript for this episode, links to Paige's website, where to find her and more information about that fantastic masterclass opportunity. So if you purchase Paige's book on Tuesday, the 28th of July, you have the opportunity to win a seat at an exclusive online Becoming Anti-Fragile Masterclass that she's hosting. We've also added in the show notes links to Nassib Taleb's book that Paige mentioned, Anti-Fragile, Things That Gain From Disorder, and some YouTube videos and other resources that I found interesting whilst researching this episode. It is all at potential.com.au forward slash podcast. And please, if you're enjoying the show and you'd like to support us further, say hi and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Every review helps others to find the podcast and together we can spread the word about our guests and positive psychology and how to live a thriving, happy life. And in our next episode of the show, I will be talking to ultra-endurance athlete Lisa Tamati about overcoming obstacles, chasing massive goals and facing your fears, as well as the story she tells in her new book, Relentless, about helping her mother to survive a brain aneurysm, stroke and massive brain damage. That is coming up in episode 84 of the Potential Psychology Podcast. Until then, please stay safe and well weather the roller coaster and keep thriving. I will see you soon. Mm-hmm.